So I enjoy watching movies and TV shows and reading books that use a genre called reverse chronology. For example, when they implement this within a movie, the plot is revealed in reverse order. So the first scene will reveal the ending to the movie. So at the beginning, we're left wondering how all the intricate details will unfold in this story until we arrive back at the conclusion. We can assume that we know how things will conclude the way that they did, but we really do not know until we see the story unfold. Now, maybe you're sitting here thinking about this genre, and you're like, why in the heck would I want to watch a movie where the conclusion is shown at the beginning? As we approach the book of Ruth, it's difficult not to communicate how the book will end as we start out. If you're familiar with the book of Ruth, then you already know how the story will end. You know that Ruth will be redeemed by Boaz, and eventually the King David will come from the line of Ruth, and then Christ will come from the line of King David. Now, if you're not familiar with the book, then you're probably thinking, what are you doing, Jake? Why are you, why did you just reveal the ending to me? Understand that if you do not know that Ruth will be redeemed by Boaz, and that eventually it will have a great-grandchild, King David, and that eventually Christ will come from his line, then we will miss out on the reasons why Ruth is so important and just how necessary it is for what seems like a hopeless situation turn out in the good way that God intended. Also, we need to understand that the original recipients of this book of Ruth knew how the book would end. So this book was written sometime after King David was anointed because it ends with a genealogy leading up to King David. You can see in the last two verses of the book in verse 21 and 22, Boaz, and he's the one who's going to redeem, eventually redeem Ruth, fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And so the original readers of this book would have known who King David is, and many could have possibly known that he came from the line of Ruth. So what's the purpose of this book? The story of Ruth that takes place sometime during the dark period of the Judges. And the author, author, he's giving his readers a glimpse of how even in the dark period like Judges, when sin is rampant, it seems as if God has withdrawn his presence, that he is still mercifully redeeming a Moabite woman named Ruth. From a hopeless situation, he's continually carrying out his plan of redemption for her offspring. And I believe that we can easily approach this book already being familiar with how wonderfully it ends and miss how God worked out so many of these intricate details within her story to lead up to this conclusion. And so as we approach the book of Ruth together, let's pay attention to how God is working out these intricate details. And I believe that we'll be reminded how God is always working, even in the darkest of circumstances, and we'll better understand how we can approach our suffering. And we can understand that there's no hopeless circumstance for those who are in Christ, that He's always working, even when we cannot see Him working. So let's open up our Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. Uh, Ruth's the eighth book within the Bible, uh, right after the book of Judges, which we covered last week. So we have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth. So let's start in verse 1. And we're going to cover verse 1 through verse 21 today. Starting in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons... The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem and Judah. 
they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. She, then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should ha- say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more so, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Uh, join me in prayer once again. God, we come before you uh, with this first chapter, the first 21 verses of Ruth. and God, we just ask you today that you would give us understanding, that you would help us to be receptive to your word. Give us ears that will hear and and hearts and minds that will understand. I pray that anything that's said for me that is not of you, that it would fall on dead ears. But I pray that your truth will penetrate our hearts and that, God, we will be faithful in in taking your truth and and applying it to our lives and viewing you rightly and and approaching our suffering and all circumstances in life in a way that would honor you and bring glory to you. And and we ask that in your name, Christ. Amen. So basically, I've broken down this chapter into four different sections. So if you want to write these down, you can. And hopefully this will help you follow along a little bit better. Uh, and so the first section is going to be the first few verses. Uh, it's a hopeful move to avoid the judgment of God. So it's a hopeful move to avoid the judgment of God. In verses 3 through 5 is the second section. A hopeful crisis begins. A hopeless crisis begins. Uh, the third section is verses 6 through 18, and we'll see a little bit more about the nature of their suffering. 
And then the last three verses, 19 through 21, we'll see Naomi's hopeless interpretation of their suffering. So let's look at the first two verses, a hopeful move to avoid the judgment of God. It says, In a day when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of uh, the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went to, into the country of Moab and remained there. And so as mentioned previously, the book of Ruth is taking place sometime during the period of the Judges, in which we learned from Trevor last week, the book of Judges includes some of the darkest moments that we can find within the Scriptures. There are repeated cycles of rebellion, God's discipline and judgment, and then the people repent, and then you see a time where God lifts His judgment and there's a period of rest, over and over, cycles of that. We see in the last, very last verse of the book of Judges in chapter 21-25, it described as Israel being without a king, and how everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In verses 1 through 2, it tells us that there was a famine in the land that existed in the land of Judah. And this famine is most certainly a part of that judgment, likely part of one of those cycles where the people have rebelled and now it's the time of God's judgment and discipline. But understand that God, He is sovereign over all of His creation and that a famine, it does not come about unless God allows it to. And God, He communicated very clearly to His people in, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And then there's a list of curses that follow, which include one of these in verse 24, which states, The Lord will make the rain of your land powder, speaking of famine. From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. The same is mentioned in Leviticus 26. So the people of the nation of Israel... They've been worshiping false gods and partaking in, in other sinful actions, which has led in this cycle, in the period of the judges, in which God's judgment has been brought about them through a famine. And so Elimelech, he seems to be taking matters into his own hands. And in hopes to avoid the judgment of God, he takes his family and they move to the country of Moab to sojourn there. And understand when, when it says he went to sojourn there, this means that he had no intention of remaining there permanently. See, he was going to move there with his family uh, to avoid the hopefully avoid the judgment of God. And then eventually, when that famine is lifted, their intentions were to move back. He chooses to take his family and to move away from his nation and people to live in a kingdom amongst people who worship false gods, had strange customs, and who at one point, receiving the book of Judges in Judges chapter three, they had conquered over and ruled over the nation of Israel. You remember, God had brought his judgment upon the nation of Israel by strengthening the king of Moab, King Eglon, against Israel, and they would rule over them for 18 years until God delivers them. And it says in verse 2 that he takes with him his wife, Naomi, and their two sons who were named Malon and Kilion. And Elimelech, he makes this hopeful move with his family to sojourn the land of Moab and to escape the judgment of God brought about by the famine. But we'll soon find out in verses 3 through 5 that this hopeful move that Elimelech makes with his family will quickly turn into a hopeless crisis that will begin in the lives of his family members. So let's look at verses 3 through 5. A hopeless crisis begins. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. 
These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the women, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And so Elimelech, he attempts to flee the judgment of God by moving to a foreign land to sojourn there. And we learn in verse 3, the crisis begins in the life of Elimelech's wife, Naomi. Their family has escaped this famine only to encounter something much greater, death. So not only is she now dwelling in a foreign land amongst foreign people who worship false gods and partake in foreign customs, but the one person who she could go through this experience with and face the hardships of life with, her husband dies. We don't know how he dies. The author doesn't make that clear. She is left widowed in this foreign land with her, along with her two sons. Her two sons, we find out, Malon and Kilion, they eventually marry Moabite women who are named Orpha and Ruth. And you remember God earlier on in the scriptures had warned his people not to intermarry with foreign nations, women of foreign nations, because uh, they could be tempted to worship their false gods. And they were married for around 10 years, and you notice that it's, it's unusual to me that neither Orpah or Ruth, they have any children. And it's kind of unusual because family planning back then isn't like it is now. You would enter into the covenant of marriage and you had children. You know, and if you had many children, you're blessed. But Orpah or Ruth, neither one have any children. And yet neither couple in, 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 in an entire decade. So now this could be or could not be God's judgment for not only allowing her sons to marry Moabite women, but we do not know, and the author doesn't stress this. But we do know that God did not allow them to have children for ten years, and they have been barren, whether it's God's judgment or not. A decade after Naomi's husband dies, we learn that her crisis becomes even worse, and now her daughters-in-law enter into this crisis and experience suffering of their own. Because now her two sons die, Malon and Kilion. So now we have three women who are widows, and they're all childless. I couldn't possibly imagine how weighty the suffering that they are going through, the emotions, the, the thoughts of hopelessness and depression and, and all this that's going on, especially in the life of Naomi. She's lost her husband a decade later, and now, to top it off, she's lost both of her sons, Malon and Kilion. So let's continue reading in verses uh, 6 through 18, and we'll learn a little bit more. It reveals to us the nature of their suffering. Look specifically at uh, verses 6 through 7. It says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law. And so, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So Naomi, she overhears while she's working in the fields of Moab that the Lord has visited the land of Judah by blessing them with an abundance of food once again. You remember the reason why they left many years ago was because that famine had entered into their land. God brought about the famine. And possibly one of the cycles of the book of Judges at this point could have possibly have ended. Now they're entering a period of rest. And she's heard that God has provided for them once again. We look in verses 8 through 14. So at some point while they're on their journey, Naomi speaks up to her two daughters-in-law and she says, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and, and with me. 
The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should marry, say I should have hope, even I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So at some point in the journey, you see that Naomi, she turns to them, and she urges them to return back to their people in the land of Moab, so they may hopefully be able to remarry and continue their lives. They weep together, and it's probably over the suffering, the loss they've experienced. You can imagine how this suffering has brought them closer together. Probably over the prospect of weeping over and having to depart from one another. Naomi, she's lost her husband, she's lost two sons, and now she's about to possibly lose her two daughters-in-law, because they could possibly leave here. And this is likely a very emotional, difficult decision for both sides, but Naomi, she continues to argue and encourage them to return to their families and for their own well-being. She tries to convince them by arguing that the likelihood of them being able to remarry would be 0%. If they remain with her, she speaks of how she's too old to bear children. And even if she were to remarry and bear sons, they would have to wait for those sons to get older before Ruth and Orpah can marry them. And so it seems as if now she's making a pretty logical argument for them to turn around and go back home. But we also catch, begin to catch a glimpse of how Naomi is interpreting her crisis. We'll begin to see how her disposition towards God has changed. Naomi says in the second half of verse 13, no, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. See, Naomi, she's become very bitter towards God, and this has led her only to see what seems to be a hopeless future. See, Naomi, she's forgotten about the stories of those who have gone before her, who were placed in, in what seemed to be hopeless circumstances, and how God, he providentially orchestrated the events within their lives to bring about a greater purpose. Stories like Joseph and how his suffering began by him being sold into slavery and then his life is filled with crisis after crisis until in Genesis 50-20 we see he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, bitterness, it can prevent one from seeing the glimmers of God working in the darkest of times. And this has become the case in the life of Naomi. Daniel Block, in his commentary on Ruth, he writes, Naomi's disposition toward her lot in life is exposed. Naomi is a bitter old woman who blames God for her crisis. Naomi feels that she is the target of God's overwhelming power and wrath. And I'm not downplaying the suffering in Naomi's experience at all. I couldn't possibly even fathom to imagine what she's going through. And it can become very easy for us, even in our suffering, to forget the promises of God when in our minds all we can see is a hopeless outcome. John Bloom, he writes, This is what we must remember in our times of desolation, grief, and loss. How things appear to us and how they actually are are rarely the same. Sometimes it looks and feels like the Almighty is dealing very bitterly with us. 
when all the while he's doing us and many others more good than we can have imagined. God's purposes and the lives of his children are always gracious. Always. If they don't look like it, don't trust your perceptions. Trust God's promises. He's always fulfilling his promises. And so they weep together again, and Orpah decides to, to listen to Naomi's advice. She reluctantly turns around and returns to her family in Moab. But Ruth, she decides against all the advice that Naomi gives her and all the arguments that she has made to stay with her mother-in-law. And it even says that she clings to her. So Naomi, she tries one more time in verse 15. She says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth, she responds with this amazing statement and commitment in verses 16 through 17. She says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. This is a beautiful commitment. You see the faithfulness of Ruth to Naomi at this point. I mean, I, you can even think of weddings. I mean, I've heard people say that the vows that, that people make at weddings, it usually ends with until death doesn't do its part. Sometimes you don't even hear a commitment like this made in a wedding ceremony between a husband and a wife. I mean, look at the extent that Ruth goes to in her commitment to Naomi. She says, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts with you. What a commitment. What faithfulness that, that Ruth has towards Naomi. And understand, too, the likelihood of Ruth getting remarried and being able to live a life where she experiences the joy of motherhood is much greater if she turns around and she goes back to Moab. But why does she choose this path rather than choose to follow in the footsteps of Orpah? Was it because at some point, as she has spent time with Elimelech and her husband and their family, that she's come to place her, her faith in the God of the Israelites or simply because of her faithfulness to uh, Naomi? Or could it be both? And, and this seems unclear at this point, but we don't know that by, we do know that by making this statement she's made in verses 16 through 17, she's now declared her allegiance to Naomi, to the people of the nation of Israel, and to the God of Israel. And so we come to the last three verses that we will cover, verses 19 through 21. And we'll see how Naomi and Ruth, they arrive back in Naomi's hometown of Bethlehem. We'll also see, as I've titled these last three verses, Naomi's hopeless interpretation of their suffering. It says in verse 19, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? So Naomi and Ruth, they traveled back to the land of Judah, to Naomi's hometown of Bethlehem, where the chapter originally began. And when they, when they arrived there, they stir up this entire town. You can imagine, they don't have Facebook and Instagram and, and all these things to keep up with the people that you once knew. And so they have no idea what she looks like. They have no idea what's been going on in her life. She just arrives. And so there's this massive commotion that takes place within the town. And you can imagine she probably looks different. She's returning without her husband, without her two sons. And now she's also returning with this Moabite woman named Ruth. 
So there's likely an excitement from some because they haven't seen her in so long and maybe they never knew that they would ever see her again. And they're excited. Now there's some who are probably very curious why she's returned with less than what she originally left with. You can see how Naomi responds to this commotion in verses 20 through 21. She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So in verses 20 through 21, we see how Naomi responds to all this commotion caused by her return. Naomi begins to tell everyone first not to call her Naomi, which is funny because Naomi means pleasantness. And they instead, she instead tells them to call her Mara, which means bitter or the bitter one. And so she very clearly communicates what her disposition is toward God. She's bitter towards God. She proclaims how he has dealt bitterly with her, how she left full, but God brought her back empty, how God has testified against her and has brought calamity upon her. Naomi interprets everything in light of her disposition towards him. Her bitterness towards God is blinding her to any ways in which God is working through her circumstances. She believes in God. She, she knows that he is sovereign. does not say in any way that God has committed moral evil against her because he hasn't. And she is correct that God has allowed the suffering to enter her life. But she's also forgetting, forgotten that God is merciful and good and that everything he does is good. Naomi is left with this lacking interpretation of her suffering that has resulted in her seeing everything in what seems to be a hopeless future. So as we come to the end of verse 21, what are some implications that this chapter can have upon our lives? I basically have four different implications, whether some of us could possibly be going through a time of suffering and darkness now in our own lives, maybe... It could be at different degrees, whether we've lost someone or whether we're just simply waking up every day with, with thoughts of just hopelessness and we don't even want to get out of bed because we feel so hopeless. What are some implications for how we can approach our suffering in a way that would be for our good, for the good of others, and for the glory of Christ? So the first is strive to approach suffering with a theology that is not lacking. Or if you are suffering... In light of who God is, is another way to put it. Naomi does not deny that God exists. She knows that God is in control of all things and that whatever happens only takes place because God allows for it to. So she is correct when she speaks of God allowing calamity to enter her life. And God even speaks of himself to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 45 verse 7. And he says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Think back to the book of Job. Satan must first obtain permission from God before bringing about calamity in the life of Job. And this does not mean in any way that God sins. He's perfectly sinless and holy. But he is in control of a world who has been corrupted by sin and all the sinful people who live in it. God allows suffering to enter the lives of those who have been disobedient, as we learned last week from Trevor in the book of Judges. And sometimes God in his wisdom, he simply allows suffering to enter someone's life to bring about a greater purpose. And sometimes one that we can't quite see yet. In the case of Naomi, we do not know how much of the suffering she experiences is a direct result of their family's sin or simply just God allowing it in her life for a greater purpose. Naomi, she has a correct theology, but it's just lacking. We see, can easily allow ourselves to approach our suffering and to dwell on how God 
has allowed calamity to enter our lives in such a way that it leads to us becoming angry and eventually bitter towards Him. And this can lead to us having incorrect thoughts and beliefs that God is only set on bringing about judgment upon our lives because He's angry with us. But if we begin viewing God in this way, then our theology is lacking the truth that He is also merciful, that He is loving, and that He is working out greater purposes for His glory, our good, and the good of others. We can easily forget stories like Joseph and Job and many others in which God allows calamity in their lives to bring about a greater purpose in His plan of redemption. We forget that as Romans 8.28, which Joshua read earlier, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. We forget also that God brought about calamity in the life of His own Son in order to purchase our salvation. He allowed sinful men to crucify Christ. I think as John Piper correctly writes, God did not just overcome evil at the cross. He made evil serve the overcoming of evil. He made evil commit suicide in doing its worst evil. This is why we cannot forget that we must approach our suffering with a theology that is not lacking. We cannot view God as the great judge and the just one without also viewing Him as the one who is patiently and lovingly and mercifully working out a greater plan in the midst of our suffering, we have to recognize that things aren't always as they seem. So strive, number one, strive to approach our suffering with a theology that's not lacking. Do not forget who God is in the midst of our suffering. Second, do not allow bitterness to take root within your heart. See, we've all experienced suffering at some point within our lives, and there could be some of us who experience it in the time of darkness right now. You gotta be careful not to allow that anger that you're experiencing toward the person or the people who have caused your suffering, or maybe even the sinful anger that you're struggling with having towards God for allowing a time of calamity to enter your life to turn you into a bitter person. See, bitterness is nasty. It's a nasty sin that can take root within our hearts. If we're not careful, it can cause us to see everything in light of hopelessness. So the Biblical Counseling Coalition, it defines bitterness as unresolved, unforgiven anger and resentment. It is the result of anger changing from an experience to a belief. Bitterness is the seething and bitterness is seething and constant. Bitter people carry the same burdens as angry people, but to a greater extent. So the anger that has arisen in the life of Naomi because of the suffering she's experienced has been unresolved. And now she's become a bitter person towards God at the point at this point in the book of Ruth in chapter one. Now, I believe it's very important for us to understand what the difference is between anger and bitterness. For example, if someone were to sin against me, um, I may become angry at them, I may become angry in the, at that at certain instance in which they have sinned against me. Now, now, the correct response would be for that person to repent, to come and seek forgiveness from me, and for me to forgive them of, of how they've sinned against me, for that issue to be resolved and that anger to be resolved. Now, the wrong response would be for me to allow the anger to go unresolved, and over time I begin to dwell on how that person has wronged me. Eventually my focus will begin to shift from that one instance in which he or she has sinned against me, and to my entire disposition towards that person beginning to change. I become bitter towards that person. I begin to see him or her as an evil person who is always out to wrong me, rather than just viewing that one instance in which they sinned against me. Now in the case of Naomi being bitter towards God, we must first understand that God has not sinned against her, nor has he ever or ever will sin against anyone, because he's perfect and he's sinless. 
Now, likely after Naomi's husband died, and this is just speculation, that doesn't say it anywhere in the text, she's become very angry at some point with God because of the suffering he's allowed to enter her life. You can imagine after a decade of dwelling on her unresolved anger, now the death of her two sons to top that off. She's become bitter towards God. Her entire disposition towards God has changed. In bitterness, it blinds a person from seeing how God is working through their dark circumstances and it destroys all hope. And this is where Naomi's left. She sees a past full of darkness and a future full of hopelessness. And maybe you recognize that you have sinful anger towards someone or even God that is going unresolved. And I would encourage you to, to turn from your sin. And if the person who has sinned against you has sought forgiveness from you, then as it says in Ephesians 4.32, forgive them as God has forgiven you in Christ. If they have not asked for your forgiveness, then go and do your best to resolve the issue. Kill your anger so that you can have the disposition of being willing to forgive that person when the time comes. If you're angry towards God, then understand that He has not sinned against you and that if you are in Christ, that He loves you and is working out a plan that is much greater, which will result in your good. Turn from that sin ask Him for the strength to be able to resolve that anger. And if, if not, you will become a bitter person. In bitterness, it destroys joy, it destroys hope that we have in Christ. It can also greatly affect those who are around us. So do not allow bitterness to take root within your heart. And thirdly, come alongside those who are suffering with patience, love, and truth. I, I just kind of, I would love to be in that commotion of people as Naomi returns back to her hometown of Bethlehem. I'd love to see how they responded to her, the things, the statements they made to her, and the kind of questions they asked. You know, do they do it in a loving way, in a patient way? Do they speak truth to her? Uh, but how do we come alongside people who are suffering and struggling with anger towards God? And there's a lot more that goes into helping someone through a dark time of suffering than I can, I can possibly explain in a minute. And Kelsey, she could probably give you example after example in her time of counseling how each situation is different. So I'm just going to keep it somewhat general. When suffering enters a person's life, Understand that they are experiencing a variety of emotions and pain. And we as the people of God are to be present with, with these people. We are to mourn with them. We are to pray with them. We are to be patient with them. Now eventually after some time, a person, if they continue to interpret their suffering wrongly, as Naomi did, then we lovingly and patiently speak truth into their lives and help them view things correctly. As a church, we're called to look out for the well-being of one another and to see to it that the roots of bitterness do not take roots within our hearts. If this happens, then it can affect so many of those around us. The author of Hebrew, he writes, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, and no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So come alongside those who are suffering with patience, love, and truth. And lastly, there is never a hopeless situation for those who are in Christ. See, the book of Judges, it's, it seems like a hopeless situation. It ends on a hopeless note. The first chapter of Ruth, it seems like it's hopeless to the eyes of Ruth, or through Naomi. And to a bitter person, there is no hope in sight. But there's no such thing for a hopeless situation for God's people, now specifically for those who are in Christ. God, He's always carrying out His purposes, even in the darkest of times of suffering. 
He's continually bringing about his plan of redemption, sometimes even through sinless, sinful, hopeless people. But we'll continue learning next week that even in what seems as to have started out as a hopeless situation in the life of Naomi and Ruth, we'll see that God is continually working out his plan of redemption in her life. So we cannot allow bitterness to cause us to believe the lie that there is no hope in our suffering. Even if our lives end, our hope does not end. But what about someone who has not turned from their sin and trusted in Christ and understand that there is no hope apart from Christ? But isn't that the beauty of the gospel, that God gives hopeless sinners life in Christ? I urge you to listen to the gospel if you haven't trusted in Him. That we're all sinners separated from a holy God because of our sins and that God, He sent Christ to take on our sins and to make atonement for them. And we're simply called to turn from Him and to receive Him, the one who saves. So as we come to the end of this chapter and the end of this message, chapter one, it does kind of leave us with this, this sense of kind of hopelessness and it seems as if it's a hopeless situation. In the following weeks, we begin to see through, as Jordan preaches, as as uh, Joshua and Trevor continue on in 2, 3, and 4 of Ruth, that God, He's all along in chapter 1 and all throughout the book been working out His plan of redemption in the life of Ruth and that will continue on throughout the Scriptures leading up to Christ. And even now, He's continually redeeming those who are His. Uh, but join me in a, in a time of prayer as uh, John Mark comes up. God, we, uh, we come before You in the name of Christ. God, you are good and you're holy, and that we don't always understand the reasons why uh, you allow suffering to enter our lives. And sometimes uh, we do confess that we we can allow that to allow anger to stir up within our lives, and possibly even allow us to become bitter. But God, we we know we know that your scriptures say that you are all wise, you're all powerful, you're in control of all things. That God, you are working out all things in a way that will bring you the most glory. In a way that will be for our best good and for the, the good of those who are around us. God, we ask you that you help us to trust in the character of who you are, that you are, you are doing this, that you're not just, just a, a, a judge and, a just judge and a holy God, but you're also, uh, merciful and patient and loving. And we're thankful that you are all these things. Give us the grace to be able to, to take these truths and to approach our suffering, suffering in a way that would honor you. We ask that in your name, Christ. Amen.